Digital Jesus. Digital Jesus. And I still have the photo of where I was when it happened. And it's a photo of me and I'm in bed with my sister and my cousin. And my sister is like, I don't know, three, four years old. Uh, so I must have been about 18 months and my cousin's about four or five years old. And in those days, you know, in um, early, very early 1970s uh, life, uh, particularly for us living in Hackney, London, we used to go downstairs when my mum and my dad went out to the pub for the evening, probably a Saturday night, you know, everyone goes down the pub. Back in the day when families used to stick together more, and I'm not saying they don't now, but I know my family's become um, a lot more splintered. You know, divorces happen, people move away, people die. That, that, that's, that's what happens, right? This particular night, we were downstairs, as I say, in the neighbour's house. And the neighbour, I still remember her name. Her name was Carmen. Yeah, Carmen. And she used to babysit for us. And before we went to bed, this particular night that I'm talking about, she turned around and she said to us all, right, have you done your prayers? And we all look at each other, me and my sister and my cousin, Leah, my sister, Sharon, my other uh, cousin, rather. Leah's my older sister, Sharon. And then there's me. We look at each other and we're like puzzled. Prayers? Prayers? What's that? Well, Carmen goes on to say, have you never heard of Jesus? That was the first time I heard the name. Jesus. That night we got on our knees and we prayed just according to her instructions. We followed the Lord's Prayer. And then at the end of it, we were told we could pray for people. And we were asking all sorts of questions. Well, what do you mean pray for people? Pray for who? Our babysitter Carmen said, well, you, you want to pray for your mum and your dad, probably, to start with. How about that? That's a good place. Pray for your mums and your dads, because obviously my cousin's got a different mum and dad. So we did. And then we like, what do we do now? And she said, well, surely there's other things you'd like to pray for in the world. Anything else? Long story short, we ended up praying for nearly everything in existence that night. Why? Because we learned if we prayed, we got to stay up later. <laughs> Which is actually a pretty cool story. The coolest part of that story, of course, is we first, for the very first time, became aware of the name and the power, even in that moment, for three small children looking for an easy way to stay up late. There was no hardcore indoctrination from the babysitter. She didn't tell us we were going to hell if we didn't complete our prayers. She didn't tell us that if we didn't get saved now and invite Jesus into our heart that we're all doomed and we're never going to be able to get saved. She didn't tell us about the amazing relationship that there can be had in the word and the scripture around the stories and the, the accounts of the life of Jesus. And she certainly didn't have enough time to tell us about who Jesus was. And if I remember rightly, and I am really blessed because God blessed me with an amazing memory. And it's almost about 95% plus recall. And she, when we asked her, who is Jesus? She said something along the lines of, Jesus, he was the man 
that died for our sins. That was all she said. And we said, well, where does he live? And she said, he lives inside us, inside of everyone. Now, could you have said a more confusing thing to a bunch of kids all under age five? Probably not. But, in actual fact, we didn't really get too... Well, I can only speak for myself, but I know my sister and my cousin never spoke. So, unless they were too shy, which I doubt that very much, we just all accepted that as what it was. And there was probably a question along the lines of how can he live inside us? Oh, yeah, well... You know, if you were, if you're an atheist or a disbeliever or a um, a persecutor of Christians, you're probably sitting there coming out with some pretty naughty X-rated comment right now. But that's all right, because you know we still love you. And and that was her answer. She said, "Because Jesus is love, and love is everywhere, and Jesus lived." And he died for our sins so that we could love each other and go to heaven. What's heaven, Carmen? Well, heaven is a place where everything is amazing. You can't imagine how brilliant heaven is. Think about all the things in your life that are so brilliant that you love. And then times that by a number that you can't imagine. And that's how brilliant it is. No, it's even better than that. It's unquantified and nobody can say how amazing it is except for guess who? Jesus, we said. <laughs> and yes, Jesus is that name. Why am I talking about Jesus? Well, to answer that question, I'm going to tell you another story. Moving on from that event was my life. I'm David, as you may have worked out already. Perhaps I've said my name already. My brain is, uh, although it retains a certain amount and a lot of information about events and memory of events, it's not so good in putting those in order when it comes to me laying them out. It's imagine it's like a puzzle with the pieces still all out on the table and every time I have a new memory it creates a new piece and the puzzle rather what would ultimately be the picture gets bigger but the piece just gets laid out amongst all the other pieces that have not been put into place yet and my brain works in a way where I gather pieces and I patch them together in little sections and then eventually they go into the main body of the puzzle and it just gets clearer and clearer what the picture is but if you've ever done a big puzzle and you don't have the lid like I mean the, the photo of what it's going to look like when it's finished that puzzle is extremely well no you know it's a lot harder isn't it well of course with my puzzle I don't have a picture either but I do have a journey which I am taken on, which unfolds as I go along and I get, um, I get snippets. It's like I get little snapshots, like thumbnails that you watch on the, 
that people put up at the header of their videos on uh, on the internet, right? So I get that. Well, you know, just a photo, but it's not the main photo. It's just like a sort of little, hey, have a look over here, start going down this way. And I get, uh, I get guided. I get guided by events, by conversations with people, by images, and by anything any information and i um you know if i wasn't so committed to this project i'd probably be going down the road of creating one called information junkie right because i am an information junkie i don't care where i get it from i literally eat it up when ever since a young age like even when i was in the bathroom and i used to spend a bit longer than usual on the toilet i'd be or in the bath I'd be reading everything inside, all the shampoo bottles, all the massive 23 letter scientific names on the back of them. And, the, and you know, like sodium monofluorophosphate is, is toothpaste. Who'd have thought that, eh? So that was me. Information, give it to me. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. I'd eat it up and then I sort of piece it all together. And, and, and this, as I, you, you gathered, I told you already, you know, I was a, a young kid in the 70s, but I was born in 1968. 1968. As a result, I like to think of the summer of love. Well, actually, it's not true. I was probably conceived around Christmas, New Year of 67. And, yeah, there was only two channels there, so you work it out. And, and I was, uh, I, I'm, I'm told that I was born as a result of being wanted and um and my parents were in love and so summer of love or not i was born at the tail end of it and that's that's cool that's groovy i'll take it so i digress i was born in an age where for those of you who are younger in the audience listening um there was not any of the media available <laughs> nowhere near what we had today when i when i said earlier oh there was only two channels on the tv i think the second one bbc had just come around but there was only one really main channel and that bbc it finished at about midnight i think it was and they used to be a they used to play the national anthem at the end and then there'd be this little uh the screen would have a test screen and then it would disappear into a dot and it'd be gone like that'd be it like well what are you going to do now? There was nothing. You didn't have mobiles. There, yeah, there was a telephone with a dial that took about three weeks to ring somebody, especially if you got the wrong number or, you know, you keyed in the wrong number and you sit there. Oh, mate, you know, and back then there was only seven numbers, so it was a little bit easier. Now we've got, what, sort of 12 numbers. Nobody can remember each other's number. And we just all, like, store it in the phone. We never think about it ever again. But back then, if you wanted to know a number or remember a number, you had to remember a number. Or you needed a phone book. You had to write them down in a phone book. And so there you had the telly, right? You didn't have a mobile. You didn't have a computer. Computers didn't exist. The silicon chip, I was looking that up earlier actually and um i should just run a quick search on the on the silicon chip and um and find out when the silicon chip silicone chip was discovered uh let's see what would it would it be at wikipedia there you go so 
the silicon chip was started oh that's a magazine um silicon chip when was the silicone oh i don't spell it right silicone chip invented when was the silicon chip invented 1961 there you have it so this is according to uh just run a search on you know on the internet and in 1961 the silicon chip was invented by two american electrical engineers jack kilby and robert noyce their creation revolutionized and miniaturized technology and paved the way for the development of the modern computer wow how about that and um, if we look into a bit deeper you can see that that integrated circuit chip was demonstrated in 1960 actually the idea of integrating electrical circuits into a single device was be was born when the german physicist and engineer werner jacobi developed and patented the first known integrated transistor amplifier in 1949 yeah how about that german right german now i'm going to talk about this more a little bit later one thing i will mention is operation paperclip right remember that german physicist werner jacobi 1949 right connected to the two americans of 1960 in 1949 that was the transistor right it's Werner. but the british radio engineer jeffrey doma or dama probably the latter proposed proposed to integrate a variety of standard electronic components in a monolithic semiconductor crystal in 1952 monolithic single standalone semiconductor a way to probably separate or carry rather to carry electricity so a singular way to carry electricity there was a crystal in 1952 turns out it comes from sand actually and sand the particular sand the silicon sand is made up of i think it's three parts sand and one part oxygen or rather three parts silicon one part oxygen um, a year later and then 1952 harwick johnson filed a patent for a prototype ic between 1953 and 1957 sydney darlington and the yasao toru it's at the electrotechnical laboratory proposed similar chip designs where several transistors could share a common active area so they could like essentially work together but there was no electrical isolation to separate them from each other so they just sort of they figured out how to connect them i guess but not how to separate them now for the physicists scientists and electronic engineers out there of you that have studied this a lot deeper than i am right now in this uh diatribe would probably have a bit more depth than that but anyway let's just keep abreast of the situation for the moment because i'm taking you on a journey here now so the advent of the computer well where did the computer start the computer arguably started in uh, nazi germany they wanted a way in the death camps to collate information you know you mad people like uh the the angel of death that mengele bloke who was at auschwitz and the people used to get off the train and he used to stand there like a like you know with his arms uh, uh side to side and like so he's making like a, a cross sign with his body 
and he'd be palms towards the people as if to say, you know, here's my flock, who shall I choose from? And he'd shout out left and point at people, right and point at people. And he was all about picking out the kids. He wanted, a, he wanted, he was a proper nasty, ah, oh, mate, he was a C to the highest order. And he wanted to mess around with kids and the dark stuff that he used to do, people. I mean, I want to try and keep this, you know, open to all ears, so I won't go into detail. But you look him up, the Angel of Death, Mengele of Auschwitz. Naughty, right? Naughty, naughty, naughty. So, people like that, who were contributing to this mad idea, whatever that was, whatever books you read, whatever understanding you have about uh, Nazi Germany and their um, their ultimate strategy, you know, their final solution... You can't you can't divert from this fact that there were some naughty people working in various different fields, eugenics, um, obviously nuclear technology, uh, weaponry, um, biology in, in terms of warfare, chemical warfare, and computers. And a very well-known company um, that has the letters BMI in a different order, again for copyright reasons, they invented the first computer and it was to collate uh, the victims uh, in the murder and the slaughtering houses of the camps in um, Nazi Germany or Poland as that one was. And it was a, like a punch card system. You used to put a piece of card in and then it would punch out the hole referring to eye colour, hair colour, height, skin colour, and weight i think it was now it's not exactly 100 percent important what those characteristics of division were for those cards but the main point i'm making here was that a series of events took place in a computer which allowed them it was a mechanical computer probably at that time because as i've just read out the silicon chip wasn't invented until 1960 so computerization was mechanical right you could excuse me you could say that of the industrial age up until the industrial age there was no mechanical operation right think about that just hold on to that for a second right Mechanical operation, like automation, parts moving in sync with each other, powered by an engine that essentially did that work. Now, yes, there were mechanical um, objects like farming, farming equipment, right? Like plows and stuff like that. But they weren't really mechanical, were they? They were one piece. They just, maybe we had the wheel which gave us kind of something to roll on uh, to move carts around and and perhaps they had some form of suspension. I'm not 100% sure about that. But the industrial age brought us mechanicization, mechanic, mechanics, yeah, brought us automation and mechanics. And that's why it just kicked off, didn't it? Because you could process you could process lots of things a lot quicker. You can manufacture a lot quicker. And you could do what himself, uh, Ford, Henry Ford did. You could set up production lines, ultimately building cars in his case. So by the, by the time 1960s has arrived, 
we'd had in, uh, lots of inventions as a result of the industrial age right the first one being the steam train um louis not louis yeah louis stevenson wasn't it the rocket so the rocket came around and then you had faster trains and they and they went for longer distances and they ran on coal and 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 you had a whole steam powered um, motorized uh, engines coming along and then the internal combustion engine was developed and then and so cars came along and then other things like machines that could wash your clothes strip your potatoes i'm sure there's a lot to list and we ended up in essentially the advent of the the silicon chip and then that went on to create probably small things like they were probably using it in space technology let's be fair they would have used that they would probably would have grabbed the jumped on that right and would have they, they say they said for many years that the first moon landing you know if you believe in that or not that's irrelevant for the conversation but they whoever they are you know let's not talk about that either but the amount of technology that went into a washing machine right up to now was all that they had in terms of technology to put a man on the moon or at least to put a rocket in space and bring it back so computers have played a very important part in life but they've also removed a lot haven't they like computers are the great remover so if you imagine they um they automated lots of farming uh, tasks like ploughing fields you know if you had a machine you got it done a lot quicker you didn't need as many people if you had a factory you were producing garments or cloth or milling cotton or you know you were uh, processing coal or processing minerals or you know etc you, you didn't need as many people because because the machines replaced the people but by the time you got to the computers it didn't happen instantly, but, you know, it started to trickle in. So computers started doing the washing. So there wasn't as many washerwomen required to do cleaning. So a lot of the wash houses were, you know, started to close down. And and you get the picture, right? So the digital age started to remove people's access, not just to the land and work in the land, but also to jobs. And they started to go thick and fast. But alongside that, things grew. What grew? Well, the financial empire grew, didn't it? And also the taking over, you know, the industrialization of the world, the taking that to other countries, like taking the railway workers to the United States, for instance, and, and doing a deal, you know. Oh, listen, we need to roll out a railway across the United States, but guess what? The, uh, the current people that are in charge ain't having it. We need to just do something about this, install a new system. There is a lot of information around how the railway and its owners, aka the royals, were able to roll out those skills, those technicians, those engineers, and they were and, and they were encouraged to go overseas and to and make a shed, not even a shed, like a, a shipping container of cash and gold and diamonds and anything they get their hands on for these countries to pay to have their country industrialized of course we'd had various forms of um industrialization like you know when the 
various countries went around the world on their boats and started colonizing different areas and enslaving people and and so that would happen in that's happened you know throughout time but probably it kicked off more so in the 17th and 18th century it became much more of a international uh, cross blue water as they call it open water like seas and you know oceans you're able to travel across them and take the risk of what they lose on the way backwards and forwards knowing that the output of what they were doing was would far exceed the expense and so you had industrialization on a global scale as well and 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 of course entering new territories where people weren't as uh, perhaps able to defend themselves industrially with the weaponry that was being created you know in the in the developed world let's call it and i say that very loosely so countries like britain for instance and i'm not saying that it's just britain but britain i'm going to use an example because i'm from britain and it's only right and fair that i do that so Britain they go overseas they start ruling the waves and they say that there's not a place that sets on the the sun doesn't set on the British Empire right that's how much they had now the Romans had it before them and the Babylonians before that and then Alexander the Great before that and the um, under the Austro-Hungarians and then you know I'm sure there's been lots of eras of uh, of I don't know peoples races sovereign states that have ruled you know the globe and with terror and and control and so where are we okay so we're we're traveling on along this journey through time and we're following this silicon chip aren't we and the silicon chip was responsible by the time we got to the 60s of automating processes in terms of data collection data information and so on and so forth uh, i must talk a little bit about the banking system actually so the banking system grew massively in the industrial revolution because there was money that needed to change and move in and out of different territories where different languages and different currencies existed and there's a particular family that set up a banking house uh, called the red shield and it was in amsterdam and they they had a shield over their door. It was the Red Shield. Actually, they were the Amstels, uh, Amstel, Mayor Amstel, and um, Rothschild. And Rothschild had several sons, and he sent them out to the four uh, major capitals, five actually, of the world. I think it was London, New York, Paris, and but could it have been Vienna or something like that? You do the homework. Get back to me. And what happened was he essentially ended up becoming the main man you know and then there's lots of other stories along this financial uh, journey i can't i won't go into it now i'm sure we'll cover it over the lifetime of our relationship but one other that is really important to focus on excuse me is the one that came about as a result of a meeting on jekyll island just off the coast of georgia uh, in the United States, on the east coast of Georgia, there's a little island called Jekyll Island, and a bunch of people, bankers and financiers, got together, and they essentially started what would become the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. And the sitting presidents have said that it was a single most overlooked event that had ever taken place for a man in office, and it was worse than having a standing army against you. And 
yeah, it essentially took the money uh, supply and it handed it over to a private enterprise. Four names are in question. Uh, Rothschild, Rockefeller, JP Morgan and Paul Warburg, I believe his name was. And therein begins the journey of the overthrow of money. Money and power. And they, yeah, they went to work on just creating it uh, in the first instance as a fractional reserve, which meant for, because just to tell you about fractional reserve, quick overlook. Once upon a time, people used to trade in precious metals, golds, etc. In fact, way back, it was uh, shells and and there were, you know, there were st precious stones, but gold became the, the standard, right? Gold and silver, actually. But gold became very cumbersome. It was unsafe to carry lots of it, also very heavy. And you needed somewhere to keep it safe. If you buried it, you need the, to know where you buried it and nobody else knew. Otherwise, they'd come and get it off you. And you couldn't flash it about and flaunt it. And you couldn't change it up, right? You had to sort of melt it down and break it into smaller pieces, probably where the sovereigns came from. Pieces of eight, pieces of eight. And it was probably something you used for high-end purchases like land or flocks of animals or a wife, you know, whatever. So back in the day, gold became a liability as much as it was an asset and um, a show of wealth, or rather a consequence of uh, hard work and wealth. And so a bunch of people decided, look, you know what, how about we look after it for you and uh, we'll give you this piece of paper and you can use the piece of paper instead and we'll secure your gold and when you want it, come back and get it. And of course... That happened it went down quite well but i'm sure lots of people didn't make it back to get their gold for many reasons one they may have died secondly maybe they didn't tell you the one that was in there and they died and thirdly that they realized that all they needed was the piece of paper that was enough they used to flash the piece of paper and there's a brilliant film called the million pound note and it does uh, a best uh, version of what i'm about to tell you which is that when people think you have money and you can prove you have money, then they'll give you whatever you need and they'll lend it to you and you can just give them the money later. Well, of course, if you have a £1 note and then you go out and you show it to people and that means, oh, he's got plenty of dough. This is a very loose example. They might lend you a, a pound's worth of stuff. But if you go in 10 different places and show them the same note, you get 10 loans, don't you? So essentially you end up with £10 worth of stuff and you've still got your note on you, right? And so that's what the bank did. They were like, well, nobody's coming in to get their gold. We're giving out these notes. Why don't we just give out more notes? Nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to come and check. Because why? Because we own the bank. Because we're private. And you can't do anything. And the government can't come in and check our records. Does that sound familiar? Nothing like today in 2021, isn't it? So... Where are we? So we've had a look at this. Uh, we, we remember we're on this. We're on this trip through the silicon chip, and we're trying to establish right. What has this got to do with why I have started this podcast? Remember, we've still got Jesus in the background here. He's the one half of it, and we're looking at this next half, and and it's all going to come clear. Just stick with me. Thanks for hanging around. Now. So you've got industrial revolution, you've got the money, you've got the royals, you've got the um, the colonialization, you've got the slave trade, and you've got the manufacturers, 
and uh, and then of course along with that you've got consumerism so in the in the 50s the 60s america like the the 2.2 the nuclear family buy this buy that consumerism became like the new addiction people loved it buy it buy this buy that advertising to all your weak points you know using anything they could to aim and target towards you to get you to come in and buy their stuff and your focus shifted it shifted on to consumerism took off massive like i mean it's biggest thing on planet today right but along that journey was certain other products that were coming into the market you'd had now uh we're talking around let's look at the 60s 70s still where the integration of the chip started we've got things products like coca-cola have been around for a little while now obviously you all know it started out with actual cocaine inside it was punted on the back of wagons and they went from town to town alcohol you had alcohol that was being sold and where the term on the wagon comes from because people used to follow the course and cart with the alcohol on the back and they get so drunk that they'd pass out and because the owners didn't want to lose their business and they were moving to the next town they'd pick them up and let them sleep on the back of the wagon by the time they waked up woke up whatever they'd be in the next town and they could start drinking all over again so you see captive audience started a long time ago they figured out ways to sell stuff to you and how to keep you buying it and how to keep you addicted to it so cons- consumerism took off as well now how does this all make any sense towards a silicon chip well as ultimately what happened was the tv channels they became more of them you know uh tv was born that was um in london the first tv broadcast came from alexander palace which was just literally i was born you could see it from the window of the house where i was born so i was born at the at the heart of tv where tv began where joe john logie baird sent a digital or you know it was an analog picture then but he sent an analog picture across the airwaves how about that and it arrived at the other end not unlike charlie and chocolate factory when mike tv got you know sent by charlie across the airwaves uh, admittedly he came across a lot smaller but so did images that were being transported from real life onto the tv so much so that when i was a young lad i i literally thought that when the telly went off all the people that were inside walked out the back of the telly and went home yeah i know i was young tell me that you don't know another kid that's done that if you don't well uh maybe it's just me anyway so tv was born radio was obviously born telephone was born uh computerization was now taking off and ultimately we landed in a place where in the, probably in the 70s just gonna grab my ipad again let's have a look at let's open up a new page and you'll some of you might uh the birth of the computer well we talked about the computer in the nazi uh, death camps right we talked about that we know about that but i'm talking about the home computer you know not that massive one they used to show um on tomorrow's world which is a program in the uk that used to predict the future but here 
Actually, when I looked at Bertha Computer, the first thing that come up, I didn't realise this was here. It says, World War II acted as midwife to the birth of the modern electric computer, electronic computer. Unprecedented military demands for calculations and hefty wartime budgets spurred innovation. Early electronic computers were one-of-a-kind machines built for specific tasks, but setting them up was cumbersome and time-consuming. The revolutionary innovation of storing programs in memory replaced the switches and wiring with readily changed software. Now, look, as I say, I was in school in the uh, 70s, right? And, and in the early 80s, yeah, the early 80s, that's right, I was in a maths class, that was 1981, and they rolled in this massive computer and uh, and they had it was huge it was like the size of a big briefcase a big sorry suitcase almost it was on a trolley and it was attached to a tv through an aerial connection and when she brought it in my teacher miss lennox bless her he said, okay, it's going to take a bit of time to get going. And she had, like, literally floppy disks. You know, most people have never seen one, but they were literally these floppy disks. And you used to flop them around in your hand. They were sort of about the size of a, I don't know, a CD cover, if you've any of you have seen one of those. But you could flop them around, and you had to put them in. I mean, you had to write a small bit of code in. I think it was basic. Uh, C++ is it, where... You write line 10 and then line 10 is go to line 20. Line 20 is print uh, my name is David and line 30 is go to line 10 or whatever. And then line or line 40, line, whatever. I can't remember. But anyway, it, carry out this little, uh, this coding would write this bit of program. It was flash your name up on the screen loads of times. Well, just one under the other really. It's like copy and paste in the old days. But... When you switch the computer off and you've uh, turned it off and then you turn it back on, you have to start all over again. And I and I said to the teacher, Miss Lennox, I said, Miss Lennox, why do you have to keep like doing it all over again, like telling it what to do? Why can't it remember what you tell it to do? And she said, David, it sounds like you should go into computers. I'll never forget that, David. That sounds like you should go into computers and i said well miss it makes sense that instead of having that floppy thing that you put in um that you have hundreds of those that live inside the machine and that they remember what was what happened and every time you switch it on there's a that those processes are automated and it remembers and it just goes through it and prints your name up and she said you definitely need to go into computers so i went home that night and i said to my mum what happened and she said David and I and I'll give it I'll give my mum credit she was a visionary she said to me David computers are the future you won't be uh, it won't be a bad thing if you got into them she also said that there was subliminal messaging on the TV uh, in my family you used to get uh, taken a mickey out of saying stuff like that in those days but we you know we thought at the time oh she meant like uh, little pictures would flash up intermittently, which was a form of um, hypnotism stroke manipulation, I guess, um, mind control that um, 
uh, ultra mk ultra stuff right but little did we know where that would lead to and we'll get to that later and so computers you know we're looking at when was the first computer born i guess we should say that um the, the some people say it was in the 17th century like there's this guy uh ted talk right he's got a ted talk saying the seventh the 17th century was the first computer so uh, there's lots of thought about this um uh, when it actually was um but let's have a look at the history of computer timeline let's see if there is actually some credibility on this so in 1822, uh, sorry, 1801, Joseph Marie Jacquard invents a loom that uses punched wooden cars to automatically weave fabric designs. Early computers would use similar punch cards. That goes back to the computer I was talking about that they used in the Nazi death camps, right? 1822, English mathematician Charles Babbage conceives of a steam-driven calculating machine that would be able to compute tables of numbers the project, funded by the English government, there you go, the English government again, is a failure. But more than a century later, however, the world's first computer was actually built. More than a century later. So they're talking about the 1920s. But coming back to the timeline, 1890, Herman Hollerith designs a punch card system to calculate the 1880 census, accomplishing a task in just three years and saving the government £5 million. He establishes a company that would ultimately become, yep, you guessed it, IBM. In 1936, Alan Turing presents the notion of a universal machine, later called the Turing, uh, sorry, the Turing machine, capable of computing anything that is computable. The central concept of the modern computer was based on his ideas, and 1937, that was a year later, J.V. Atten, Asof, a professor of physics and mathematics at Iowa State University, attempts to build the first computer without gears, cams, belts or shafts. 1939, Hewlett-Packard is founded. 41, Asof and his graduate student design a computer to solve 29 equations simultaneously. 1943-44, two professors, John Mousley and J. Presbyterian Eckhart, build the Electronic Numerological Integrator, a.k.a calculator considered the grandfather of digital computers right digital and here enters the word digital this is very important this is the second word of what of what we're talking about today so remember we have jesus and we have digital okay now let's carry on Remember that date, 1943 to 1944. What was happening then? The Second World War, the middle of the Second World War, the heart of the Second World War. Arguably, and maybe they put three to, uh, 43 to 44, America and actually end, had not actually entered the war yet. War yet? Let's find out. Right, and uh, we're, we're, I'm doing all this as we're figuring it out, right? When did USA enter the World War II? United States 
began to provide significant military supplies and other assistance to the Allies in 1940, even though the United States did not enter the war until 1941. Very convenient that the Americans enter the war, right? And then within two years of, you can imagine what they're finding out, right? Coming across stuff, like flying into towns and cities during the attacks. And, and they're finding out information and data and industrial espionage, right? They're finding out how stuff works, catching scientists, etc. Remember, Herman Hollerith, right? IBM. Pretty sure Herman Hollerith, Hollerith is a German. Let's have a look. Let's look him up. Herman Hollerith. Herman Hollerith. Here we go. He was born in 1860. He died in 1920. He was an American businessman, inventor, and statistician who developed an electromechanical tabulating machine for punch cards. Yeah, the company went on to become international business machines of uh, 1924. So, but he was actually born the son of a German immigrant, Professor George Hollerith, and a Groschling. Uh, in uh, near Nelstout and uh, Weinstraffer doesn't doesn't really say where in Germany, but never mind. German immigrants in a, in America. You see how it all just like you know. If you put it this way, if you was Hitler and you needed information, bods. Right, in the Allied countries, right? Well, America wasn't an Allied country at the time the war kicked off, you know, as it already, we just found out there until a couple of years into it. You'd have spies, right? I mean, it was back in the day before computers. Of course, they were there in this context, but computers, in terms of being able to contact people very quickly, telephones, perhaps you could say, but there was still a lot of organisation. It was easy to listen into telephone calls because they was all run through manual uh, operators who had to plug cables in to connect calls. You had to request a call where it's coming from, going to. It was all very trackable. So the only way you could sort of have spies installed in another country was to was to transmit information by hand. You know, written, stored in like secret locations, handed out in secret packet, uh, packages and codes and so on and so forth. So it wouldn't be unadventurous to suggest that there was some connection still to Germany from a professor that was installed in an American university, right? So yeah, these two Pennsylvanian professors prevents Pennsylvania, remember, like Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, all up that way, right? The heart of the, the belly of the beast, if you like. Remember the Federal Reserve? American. Scientist. American. Computer. American. Uh, Operation Paperclip. American. Uh, there's a bit more that goes on in terms of the Fortran programming. I think that was the one maybe I learned at school. It talks about the Jack Kilby, Robert Noyce, Douglas Engelbert, uh, Bell, uh, Alan Sugar, Robert Metcalf, uh, invented Xerox, and then, and then we end up with 1976 and Steve Jobs, right? And uh, of course, you know the rest. Now, that going back to that digital of 1944, 1945. Now, arguably, this was a time when we ended up with uh, 
with the power hungry megalomaniacs uh, not able to uh, be so not not happy enough with the the amount of control and leverage they had over people they suddenly found themselves in a position where computer technology aka the digital age was taken off and it was a they was able to carry out and collate data, collect data, collate data, drill down into data, and ultimately what you're looking at today is a, a system, which is the internet, which is built around a digital age, and uh, it corrupts you, it draws you in, it uh, takes you off your eye off the ball, and and it is uh, run by people who have a narrative, and that narrative is not best suited to the average person, and and it's a big subject why uh but my theory is is because they are well we're enslaved that's essentially it and and they don't want to have to think about the enslaved they just want the enslaved to do as they're told and to do the small amount of convenient tasks they need to to sustain their beautiful little planet that we're taking up too much space on and they have lots of systems in place, and it's been going right, right, right back to the days of the uh, the Babylonians and and Egypt. And, and don't take this personally. If you're Egyptian or Middle Eastern or European or Asian or whatever, don't take this personally, please. This isn't an attack on any one place or person or you know color or creed. And and we're all different. That's cool. But we all bleed red, and we all have a, a spirit, and we all have the power of choice. Okay, but. The majority of people on this planet don't get a say, and you can see that in the events that are unfolding today. It's it's full of hypocrisy, and you can't you can't talk the truth. They tell you all the amount of mad stuff, and you have to just believe it. And they they feed it to you through the through news channels, through the media channels, um, through uh, the internet. They and and also they call people and control the narrative they switch people off to have an alternative view when that's fact that alternative view is the truth you have politicians that are behaving just like complete and utter assholes and and they don't care and they laugh they laugh in the face of the, the public that think that they have any choice over whether they're in power or not by going to the ballot box and you've got people like tony blair war criminal lording it up and getting you know uh getting pats on the back from the Queen and special medals and a uh, million pound a pot for speaking at lunches and stuff like that and book launches and and imagine that, right? A dude that went to war over lies is now in control of dishing out something that is going to essentially wipe out and disrupt people's immune systems to the point where they will never return. Potentially, that's what's going to happen. And also, they won't be able to reproduce and if they do, there's going to be problems in the reproduction process and that's going to go on for generations and it's going to be a burden not only on those people that it happens to, but also to people who pay taxes and want to play a fair game. Why is all this important to this message today? And what about those two words? Well, Jesus and digital, remember that. 
So what I find myself in, and we'll talk about this more as we go forward on this journey, is that the the powers that be, the ones that want to control the narrative and shut you down and lock you away if you have an opinion different theirs, the government, the police, the the laws that are being made up to justify their behaviour and to oppress the uh, average common person even more, the division that they're creating through the media, through our sexual preferences, through our colour, through our location of birth, through the currency that we carry, through the financial transactions that we carry out through the things we buy through the way we look the way we dress the way we sound the education we have or don't have uh through the school we do or don't go to through the you know through the unbanked to the banks you know the division is massive and they create it all because it's the oldest trick in the book right divide and conquer bread and circus divide and conquer you know you get it they're all old tricks that stand the test of time and and they haven't, you know, no, they've left no stone unturned. And the last stone they had to unturn, overturn, which was essentially the stone of our freedom, was the one that was connected to our spiritual journey, right? And our spiritual journey is the only one that they can't get off us. And you know why? Because it's individual. Because... Your relationship with whoever you consider to be higher than you, and maybe you're an atheist or agnostic, maybe you think you're God. Well, I'm here to tell you there's only two things you need to know about God. You're not it, and there is one, right? And the sooner anyone that thinks they are God starts to play that uh, fiddle, the better it is for all of us. Because as soon as that happens, then we're no longer lording it over or wanting to lord it over each other. And so you can come out with your your woke, do-gooder, let's like start shifting the scales into the favour of those that we consider have been less fortunate than the others, aka the white-black narrative, right? You can start doing all that, but all you're going to do is end up with a different version of oppression, you can even say, oh, let's have a revolution, let's kick the government out and get a new one in. But all you're going to do is get a different set of people that are going to fall prey to the same problems. Why? Because the problems aren't at governmental level. They're at the level of the people that control the money supply and the power. And they make the decisions. And why? Because they've built an empire on doing it. And it's an empire built on fear. And when fear is in place, faith, 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 faith doesn't have a chance, right? But I mean, I'm telling you now, your spiritual journey is the most important thing for them to get off of you. And if they can switch you off from having one, why? Because if you have a spiritual journey, you'll realize what they're doing ain't, ain't kosher. It's not cracked up to what it's meant to be. They're lying. They're cheating. It's a fallen world. It's the devil's world. And they are controlling more and more of it with the digital age, right? So they've, they've practiced this over thousands of years. And they're coming to a point now where they're... they're they, in their heads, because they're all head-based, they don't operate from the heart. They don't operate from love. They operate from satanistic behaviours. They're up to no good. They're 
devil worshippers these people you've only got to look at what they're doing they want to inject like experiments into people they tell lies on the tv the the politicians are lying and telling lies to do stuff to us to convince us to go to wars because they need to perpetuate the cycle of the industrial military complex right and the level that these people go to the banks like they you know they do the whole boom and bust cycle and and they plunge people into poverty and take and you know an asset strip people period over a periodic uh table uh sorry over a table laid out periodically so they know when they're going to boom and bust the society and when they do guess who uh foots the bill like when america bailed out the rbs to the tune of 800 million pounds and then within six months it was all gone and they were knocking on the door of the government aka the taxpayer again to bail them out again and that stupid ass gordon brown who, who gave them the money without asking any questions he said to him he decided oh then we'll ask the question where's all the 800 millions gone mate and of course they said to him none of your business that's private we're a private bank we don't owe you nothing mate like you know you should have asked that then well they were right he should have asked that then so you see donuts running donuts power hungry megalomaniacs so you see what happened the taxpayer got plunged into further debt you don't earn anything every pound every dollar you make you probably see about five cents of it after you've paid all your tax why because the number crunchers the computers they know where you are what you're buying when you're buying how much it costs how many of you are getting it where you live how, where you travel to what you spend how much you earn they know everything about everyone right they know how to just change a column and strip you of any dignity you might have left and there's a few of you out there who still turn a decent income and they and and they parade you around on the TV shows and they tell you you can win this and you can have this fame if you just do this and release this song and become a famous musician or a famous porn star or a, or a famous whatever, then you can break through the glass ceiling and you too can have wealth and fame. You can win the lottery even. Just keep buying a ticket, you'll be all right. If someone's got to win it, you know, they just dangle the carrot in front of a few bods and lots of you jump on and try to take it and get hold of it. And of course you don't, but they tell you that someone does and then that gives you hope. And that hope, where does that come from? If you think you're not spiritual, but you play the lottery, you're spiritual. Why? Because you're looking for hope in a lottery ticket. But you, there's another place you can look for it, and it's free, and it's in the name of Jesus, right? And you might have your own God, and as far as I'm concerned, that's all right, because at least you don't think you're God. Then one day you might end up at Jesus, and I'm still going to love you, whether you love Jesus in the way I do or not. Jesus gave me my life to be able to point out and see the truth. I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth, okay? Jesus. I am the light, I am the way, I am the truth. I'm going to take you further into this rabbit hole why digital and Jesus is so important. And this is your introduction to why. My name is David, they call me King David. That's another story in itself. And this is digital jesus 
I'll see you next time, and I hope I do. And please, when you come, just be yourself. You know why? Because it was once said long time ago, everybody else is taken. God bless you. Speak to you soon. Digital Jesus. Digital Jesus. Digital Jesus. Digital Jesus.